Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hey everybody, Paul Gray here. Thanks for joining me once again. I want to talk to you today about Jesus' tone of voice. Have you ever wondered what his voice sounded like? What his tone of voice was? Those of you who've uh, listened to me for a while have heard me teach before on John chapter 4, and I'm going to look at a little different perspective today, not disagreeing with what I taught before, although sometimes I do that after I've had fresh revelation, but I just want to look at a little different emphasis. You'll remember the woman at the well, and if you heard my teaching before or some other people, you know that she has a name. Her name was Fotini, P-H-O-T-I-N-I, which means radiant light. And she actually, according to church history, and we know this now, became one of the disciples and one of the four closest people in Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter, James, and John. That irritates religious people to hear that, especially male-dominated societies. But we've learned that that was the case. And in fact, she helped several villages, including her own and whole regions, see who Jesus, Papa, and Grace really are. Jesus heard what was going on, according to the text in John 4 here, and abruptly left Judea and returned to the province of Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, until this week, I thought that Samaritans were mixed race, meaning half Jewish and half something else. But then I learned this week that actually, centuries before this event happened with Jesus uh, at the well and the woman, when Babylon conquered Israel, they took the most productive, most accomplished people as slaves, their servants, to Babylon, and they left, according to them, the undesirables in Samaria, the least accomplished, the sick, the disabled, the low achievers, the criminals, those perceived as high maintenance. They were left under Babylonian rule, and over centuries, they took other people from countries that they conquered and displaced them in Samaria too. So there became a myriad of mixed-race people there. Uh, There were no longer any that were half Samaritan and half something else. And they all worshipped these different gods from the different peoples that came in over time that the Babylonians brought there. So most of the Samaritans had kept part of their Jewish beliefs. Moses and the first five books in the Old Testament. Moses, you know, Jacob, Abraham, those people. That was all, the first five. And the rest of their beliefs was a mixture of all of this misinformation from all of these different fictitious gods. Now, in verse 5, Jesus arrived at the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Wearied by his long journey, 
he sat on the edge of Jacob's well and sent his disciples into the village to buy food because it was already afternoon. Well, pretty soon a Samaritan woman came to the village to draw water. This was in the middle of the day. And he said to her, woman, give me a drink. Now, today, if we call somebody woman, that's not necessarily an endearing term. But the word Jesus used in Aramaic was very enduring. That was the same term that he used for his mother when he was dying on the cross. And he said, woman, John's going to be your son now. He's going to take care of you. And he said, John, treat her like your own mother. It was a very endearing term. She replied, why would a Jewish man ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water? And the text says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, especially men with women, especially rabbis, which Jesus was. Jewish rabbis, Jewish men, believed that they became unclean simply by being near someone who wasn't Jewish, especially a woman, let alone by talking to them, let alone by touching something of theirs like a water bucket and actually getting a drink from it. There were polar opposites in what she said, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. I mean, Jesus just went to great length, not only here, but in many other situations, to show us how God relates to those whom religious society says to avoid. And not just religious society, society in general, you know, stay away from those people. In Jesus' day, it was tax collectors, thieves, drunks, prostitutes, irreligious people, those from other religions and women. This woman was as undesirable to the Jews as about any person could possibly be. Jewish men used to pray, God, thank you that I'm a Jew not a Gentile or a Samaritan, and thank you that I'm a man and not a woman. (laughs) The point is, Jesus was totally accepting her in every way, every way that was unbelievable to everybody else in his society and in her society. There were no barriers between him and her. Well, Jesus replied to her, if you only knew who I am and the gift that God wants to give you, you'd ask me for a drink and I would give you living water. The woman replied, but sir, you you don't even have a bucket and the well's very deep. So where do you find this, quote, living water, unquote? Do you really think that you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it himself along with his children and livestock? Jesus answered, if you drink from Jacob's well, you'll be thirsty again. Now, that was true of that situation that was at hand, drinking water there. But it also was very true. Jacob's well represented the old covenant and the law. And that's a picture of law, religion. If you go and drink from that well, eat from that tree, it's never going to be enough. You're never going to be satisfied because you're going to think you will never satisfy God. In essence, he's saying, I'm giving you a whole different deal here. He said, but if anyone drinks from the living water I give them, they will never be thirsty again. For when you drink the water I give you, it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit flooding you with endless life. The woman replied, well, let me drink that water so I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come back here to draw water. 
she was only seeing at that point, it changed pretty quickly, but at that point she was only seeing through her physical eyes, the five senses. And she didn't want to come back there because she was ridiculed and looked down upon and gossiped at by the other women who came. That's why she came in the middle of the day because the others came early in the morning when it was cooler. She came in the middle of the day because no one else would be there. It was so hot. She was very surprised to find anyone there, let alone a man. All right. Jesus said, all right, you want living water? Go get your husband and bring him back. But I'm not married, the woman said. That's true, Jesus said. You've been married five times, and now you're living with a man who's not your husband. You've told the truth. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus' tone of voice was there. I'm not sure I replicated it very well. But Jesus didn't see her as a shameful, damaged, good sinner. He saw her as God's beloved daughter and his sister, When Jesus said that about her five previous husbands, he wasn't condemning her or shaming her. He wasn't reminding her that she was a sinful woman. If you understand that custom, you know that in that day, in that society, women could not divorce a man. Only men could divorce women. Women had no rights at all. A man could literally give his wife a certificate of divorce for burning the toast, or not making the bed right, or for having a bad attitude. Whatever he wanted, he could give her a certificate of divorce, and then the woman had to leave, and he was free to marry again. And that woman who had to leave was shamed, was damaged goods. Many times her family wouldn't let her back. She was perceived as the fault for it. She was defenseless, without protection or provision, forced to do whatever she could just to live. Matter of fact, this woman being there by herself, alone with Jesus, a man, was putting herself at great risk. I don't think I replicated the tone of his voice very well at all. Jesus was full of compassion and love and grace. No condemnation at all, no shame at all, no judgment. He was relating to how she had been rejected and abandoned. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected and abandoned by society, by his own family, by his own church, by his own local synagogue, by the people he made, by the people that he came for. He knew what it was like to be abandoned and rejected. He was totally sympathizing with and empathizing with and relating to this woman. And that's how he relates to each of us. That's the tone of voice he uses to each of us. When you know the only true God, when you know Jesus, that's the tone of voice that you hear. We know that he spoke like that to her because he is love. He is grace. He's accepting and inclusive. There's no condemnation in Christ. He never ridiculed or shamed or put down, quote, sinners, unquote. The only people he got upset with were the religious people that misrepresented his father. Well, verse 19, the woman changed the subject. You must be a prophet. So tell me this, why do our fathers, and by that she mean she meant Abraham and Jacob and Moses, why do our fathers worship God on this nearby mountain, but your people teach that Jerusalem is the place where we must worship? Who's right? Well, you know what? 
Not much has changed 2,000 years later. Each of the over 40,000 denominations in the world and the hundreds of thousands of churches believe that their house of God, where God lives, their house of worship is the only right place to worship and the only right way. See, religion is about getting things right according to them. Jesus was saying, I'm doing away with that whole system. He was saying worship is not getting together in a building, following a prescribed order of service every time. Maybe some songs, some announcements, maybe a drama or a video or prayers of repentance and prayers for God to show up and offering a message about sin and how to appease their version of God and then a plea to come back next week. No, he was saying he's doing away with that whole system. Now, in our group here in Lawrence, Kansas, we have a, we call it a worship team. You know, musicians and singers. Singers are musicians too, but people who play instruments and singers, worship team. But a better term would be a music team because we all worship. When you go to a ball game, the team is on the field. Everybody else is a spectator. But when we come to worship as Jesus is talking about, everybody worships. We come together to worship, and that's great. Now, what Jesus was getting at, my understanding, is that every single person can worship anywhere, anytime, any place, and don't let anybody tell you, you got to worship this way or it's not right. Verse 21, Jesus said, believe me, dear woman, the time has come when you will worship the Father, neither on a mountain or in Jerusalem, but in your heart. In a gear, that term, dear woman, was a term of respect and love and endearment. It actually meant beautiful. He said, your people don't really know the one they worship because they worshiped all of these made-up fictitious gods. But we Jews worship out of our experience. They did have encounters with the only true God. They just thought he had a different nature than he had. And he says, it's from the Jews that salvation is available. And when we get to the end today, we're going to talk about what salvation really is, or at least what Jesus said it was. The Jews' experience was God wanting to meet with them in person, but they didn't want to meet with him. They were afraid of him. They sent Moses to meet with him because they were scared, just like Adam and Eve were. And it was the only two God who wanted to meet with them who provided salvation. They just had a, a wrong opinion of him, and they were afraid of him. Then they put God in a box starting with the Jews in the desert with the traveling tabernacle. They had a, a room for him inside of a tent called the Holy of Holies, and they had a curtain there or a veil that separated, in their minds, God from everybody else. That's what they wanted, and it's like God said, okay, I'll go along with this with you now. Uh, we'll get to where I want to go. And then when they got to Jerusalem and eventually built a temple, and we're going to come back to this too, to worship Yahweh, they didn't want to get close to him, so built, they built this room in the very middle that was called the Holy of Holies that you couldn't get into, and there was over a foot-thick curtain that was woven together, very strong, to keep people from going in or out in, in their mind to keep God inside, and only one of the high priests could go in, and then only once a year, and then they were afraid he wouldn't come out alive, so they tied a rope around him. So, I mean, they thought they were in a safe place because they had God locked up in a box. <laughs> well, the Samaritans, they worshiped any number of false gods who they didn't even put them in a box because they thought they were out there, up there somewhere, just getting ready to smite them all the time. All right. 
Jesus, of course, was the only Jew who could make salvation available. And, of course, he did. He said in verse 23, From now on, worshiping the Father will not be a matter of the right place, but with the right heart. For God is a spirit, and he longs to have sincere worshipers who adore him in the realm of spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus called God Father there. That was news, of course, to the woman and to everybody else in the Jewish nation and anywhere else. And then he goes on to say, worship is not what you guys have thought. It's not a place, but it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of personally responding to God's love as our own good, good Father. God is spirit. And God longs to have sincere worshipers who adore him in the realm of the spirit and in truth with a right heart. I think when he said with a right heart, I think he was referring to us knowing in our heart, in our spirit, the only true God, as opposed to intellectual knowledge about God, knowing in our heart, in our spirit, the only true God who is love and grace and all good, as opposed to thinking God is like Adam's fictitious, angry God. You know, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Worshiping God, the Father, is also worshiping Jesus in the realm of the Spirit, as he said to this woman. See, Jesus is truth. Well, what, what does it mean, worshiping God in truth? I think it means the truth about what God is really like. I think you can only worship the only true God in spirit and truth when you're relating to God as he really is, pure love and light and joy and peace and grace and goodness with absolutely no trace of darkness. See, everybody else on that time on earth, they called it worship, but they were really trying to appease an angry God who didn't like him, couldn't stand to be with him, who was keeping a list of all their wrongs. That wasn't worship. That was fear. Jesus said, no, 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 no. Pure love casts out all fear because fear has to do with judgment. I want you to look at what Jesus told the disciples the night before he died in John 16, 12, and 16. He said, there's so much more I'd like to say to you, but it's more than you can grasp at the moment. But when the truth-giving spirit comes, he will unveil the reality of every truth within you, not to you, but within you. He won't speak on his own, but only what he hears from the Father, and he will reveal prophetically to you what is to come. He will glorify me on earth, for he will receive from me what is mine and reveal it to you. Well, what is his? He'd said earlier, God has given him everything and everyone. The Spirit will reveal that everything and everyone, everybody, is Christ, Christ is in them. They're in him. They're one with him. He said, everything that belongs to the Father belongs to me. That's why I say that the divine encourager will receive what is mine and reveal it to you. <laughs> will receive what is mine. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's in everyone. Soon you won't see me any longer. But then, after a little while, you will see me in a new way. Worship is in our spirit. Our spirit relating to the Spirit of Christ within us. We are the temple 
That's where God reveals truth to us in our spirit. Malcolm Smith says that, in his opinion, and I don't see anything to contradict this, that the greatest blasphemy ever would be to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and make a holy of holies where mankind would think God would then live. That would totally negate the incarnation. That would totally negate Emmanuel. That would totally negate Christ in us. Worship is not going to the house of worship, the, quote, house of God, unquote, singing some songs, reciting some creeds, making announcements, taking an offering, hearing a sermon, closing with an invitation. That's like going to a recital and having a program listing what happens next. Now, religion calls that a worship service, but God doesn't want or need us to serve him. He doesn't call us servants. He specifically calls us friends, not servants. He calls us sons and daughters. Can you imagine an earthly father demanding that his children serve and worship him? Uh, That wouldn't be a loving father, would it? Worship is recognizing and celebrating and enjoying union and oneness. No more separation. It's pure love responding to pure love, pure light responding to pure light with no trace of darkness. Worship's not going to a building and telling God how great he is. He doesn't need or want that. Now, having said that, it's great to get together with like-hearted believers in a building or a house or outside or in a park or in a restaurant or in a theater, wherever. It's great to get together with like-hearted people, share our love of God and each other, to be encouraged to remember Jesus, to sing to him, to listen, all that kind of stuff. That's great. But people can also worship any time, anywhere. Actual worship is God coming to us, which he did, living in us, which he does, him telling us how great he made us as his treasured children, and us then responding to that love. Think of this. If God told you that you were terrible, awful, dirty, sinner, completely and totally depraved, and then say, now, I'm the one who made you, That's what you're like. Now, you worship me. It's ridiculous to me. Worship is us, the Trinity in us, the four of us, the council of four, best friends, joyfully celebrating union and oneness and love responding to love. Oh, man. The woman said in verse 25, this is all so confusing. She said, I do know that the anointed one is coming, the true Messiah, and when he comes, he will tell us everything we need to know. Jesus said to her, you don't need to wait any longer. <laughs> the anointed one is here speaking with you. I am the one you are looking for. Well, at that moment, his disciples returned, and they were stunned to see Jesus speaking with the Samaritan woman. Yet none of them dared ask him why or what they were discussing. All at once, the woman left her water jar. Now, that's the point where she got it. She quit seeing things with her natural eyes and saw with her spiritual eye. She left her water jug ran off to her village and told everyone, come and meet a man at the well who told me everything I've ever done. He could be the one we've been waiting for. Now, she was not a woman who was respected in that village. For people to have responded to what she said and rush out to see who this was, something had to have changed about her. And something did. 
Hearing this, the people came streaming out of the village to go see Jesus. Then the disciples, boy, they really got it. They, they, were, they were so spiritual, they saw what Jesus was doing. They began to insist that Jesus eat some of the food they brought back with him, saying, Teacher, you, you got to eat something. They're thinking, you know, maybe somebody else brought him food or something. Maybe we got it at McDonald's and he wanted Wendy's. I, I don't know. Come on, Jesus, eat our food. We did this for you. <laughs> Jesus said, oh, come on. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to bring it to completion. Well, what is the will of God? It's, of course, that no one perish, that everybody be in a relationship with him. He said, my will is to do the will of God and bring it to completion. I believe he was successful. I believe he brought it to completion. And the will of God includes a lot of different things, but primarily it's whatever the Spirit of Christ in you reveals to you at any given moment. It may be, as Jesus did in this instance, to break all the man-made rules of religion, as Jesus did over and over again, including here with the Samaritan woman. Whatever the Holy Spirit asks you to do. It will always include loving unconditionally, giving and receiving grace, helping people awaken to the truth that God, the Spirit of Christ, is in them, with them, for them, loves them, and adores them. God's will is for it to be like heaven on earth. Jesus said in the prayer that he taught the disciples to pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, heaven and earth meet in us. The Jews thought that. They thought that heaven and earth meet in a place, in the temple, on the mountain, in the Holy of Holies. Jesus came to say, no, heaven and earth meet when God becomes one of us and lives with us and is an example as us, not for us, and comes to live in us. That's where his will is being done. Now he wants us to recognize it. Well, later on in that chapter in John four forty-two, the people there came to realize that Jesus really is the true Savior of the world. And Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the word Savior there is life-giving. Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life, is salvation. He is our Savior. He is life-giving. He doesn't save us from an angry God. He doesn't save us from our sins. He gives us life. He saves us from our darkened mindset that has a wrong opinion of God and ourselves. Now, I want you to think about this in closing. This whole conversation, Jesus and the woman, is recorded by John, who wasn't there. He was in at Wendy's buying some food for Jesus. He wrote it down much later. Where do you think he got the information for that story? Now, I don't know for sure, but I'm going to give you my opinion because I've got the microphone. Certainly, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write that. I believe that. But I also know from church history that religion has tried to keep silent from us, that that woman became one of the inner four of Jesus' four closest friends. She became one of the disciples or apostles. She became a church leader and was very influential in leading whole towns, whole regions of people to Christ, including many people in the Roman government. I believe that Fotini herself revealed to John what Jesus told her at the well, word for word. It changed her life, and I believe the tone of voice that she heard with Jesus relating to her, empathizing with her, loving her, I believe that's when Jesus revealed to him 
who God really is and what God is really like. And the Holy Spirit in us is doing that today with each of us. And it's a wonderful, amazing thing. Well, thank you all for being with me. I appreciate it. I will see you again next time. Love you all. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle. And they were stunned.